0: Uh, Again, welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. We are glad that you're here. Um, Let's just jump right in. Yesterday, uh, I was at a wedding. Many of you guys know Brittany Delaney and her uh, wonderful husband, Blake. They just got married last night. So fun to be at their wedding. Yeah, you you can applaud them. They're not here, but you can applaud them anyway. Um, Such a sweet, sweet, sweet couple. Anyway, you know, when you go to a wedding, it reminds you of your wedding, or at least hopefully it does in some respects. And, as I sat there and sort of watched everything last night, I was sort of able to think a little bit about uh, our wedding twenty over twenty three years ago. So Kristen and I got married up on Lookout Mountain and Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church twenty three years ago and uh, you know we had this uh, wonderful rehearsal dinner up there at the there 's a mountain club that had this beautiful view and had all of our friends and family there. It was awesome and then of course, the wedding was great and then, after the wedding is the reception. And uh, at the reception, it's funny because I just remember sort of um, people ushering me here and there and here and here's the cake and here's the this. And the next thing I knew, you know, we're in the limo driving down the mountain. And, uh, and it, was, it was sort of, um, I guess in some respects, disappointing because later, Chris and I realized, we, like we were like, wait a minute, when's the next time that all these people are going to be gathered around for us? And we just rushed out of there without being able to talk to anybody. Like we, we kind of missed this huge element Uh, of our own wedding. And in retrospect, we're like, oh man, what a bummer, right? What's interesting is if you look in scripture over and over and over again, you see story after story after story of people who are in the presence of God and they don't know it, right? Or, Or they have this amazing opportunity, but they're distracted by some particular task, or they're distracted by a person, or they're distracted by something. And again, they miss this wonderful opportunity today Uh, We're going to read John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. And there's just a story that's just like this. Uh, People are gathered to celebrate Jesus in John chapter 12. There's a banquet that's been uh, being thrown in Jesus' honor. So important people are invited. Lazarus is there, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Martha is serving again. Judas makes an appearance in this story. Even the Sadducees stop by to look down their noses suspiciously and maybe menacingly at the attendees. And in the midst of it all, one person actually doesn't miss it. One person stops to worship Jesus, and it's Mary. Let's begin reading in John chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is the last Passover that he will celebrate there in Jerusalem. But on the way, he stops in Bethany. And you can kind of imagine the scene. Jesus, by this point in time in his ministry, is wildly popular. He's cast out demons. He's healed the blind. He's healed the lame. He's taken on the Pharisees publicly in many instances. And most importantly, the last time he was in Bethany, He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And so you can understand why there'd be many people coming out because they wanted to see Jesus. And whether people truly believed that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead or not, they were understandably excited to see him. Let's look at verse 2. Again, it says this. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So just take a minute. And in your own head, see if you can imagine the scene just a bit. Jesus is this popular and enigmatic political and religious figure. He's the honored guest at a party thrown presumably by the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I mean, what do you give the man that raised your brother from the dead? You throw him a party, maybe more than a party, you throw him a banquet. You have a dinner with him as the man of honor, and you invite all the other honorable and powerful and respected people. And in the ancient Near East, you ate when you ate dinner, you didn't sit around a table or round tables like we do. Those dining with Jesus would have reclined on cushions on the floor around a low and central table. And at this dinner, we're told that Martha is serving. Martha only appears two or three times by name, and in each story, she's portrayed as a take-charge woman, right? She's direct. She's task-oriented. She definitely got all A's in high school, right? Chances are that Mary would have been helping her sister Martha, or at least she was supposed to be, only she wasn't. Apparently, she'd gotten distracted from the task at hand. And what we read next is actually kind of shocking. It would have shocked the people in attendance, and it would have shocked the initial readers of this story in John's gospel. Look at verse 3. It says, in the midst of all this scene, in the midst of this you know dinner, this banquet, all these respectable, honorable people, it says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So in the midst of this dinner at which Mary is supposed to be serving, she takes an expensive jar of perfume, breaks it open, puts it on Jesus' feet, and begins to wash his feet with her hair. It surely made those in attendance uncomfortable. And it should make us feel somewhat uncomfortable as well. In fact, I looked up artwork um, for this scene, and even looking at the artwork made me feel uncomfortable to see it, right? Here, we are told also that Judas strongly objects to this act by Mary, not because of the absence of social propriety or any real interest in the poor, but rather because he's a thief. And so in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, we're told that he wasn't the only disciple who thought that this act was excessive. In fact, Mark says in Mark's gospel, he says that the other disciples also rebuked her sharply. And so it sounds like a lot of people were rebuking her for this act. And if the story in Luke chapter 10 is the same occurrence, then Martha rebuked her as well, even asking Jesus to make her stop so that she could help serve. And look how Jesus responds to all of them. Verse seven, leave her alone, Jesus replied leave her alone. He steps in between them, the rebukers, and the accusers, and he covers her, and he says, leave her alone. So several weeks ago, we saw Jesus rebuke the demon that had possessed a little boy, and today we see Jesus rebuke his own disciples. He goes on to explain to them the gravity of her action and why it was so right that she would do this. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. Think about Jesus for a moment. We're told that this banquet is, again, six days before this Passover, the final Passover that Jesus will celebrate with his disciples before his death upon the cross. You can imagine that the suffering of the cross and God's impending cup of wrath is weighing heavily upon Jesus' heart and heavily upon his mind. Again, the dinner is great, the food is good, the wine is excellent, the company is easy, it's Lazarus, it's Mary, it's Martha, it's his friends, the disciples. There's laughter, there's joy. The mood might even be celebratory. It's all absolutely wonderful, it's perfect. But again, surely the cross is an ever-increasing dark cloud in Jesus' mind. The day of the death penalty is only one week away. Jesus knows it, and surely he feels it. And into this moment of reflection and celebration, Mary intrudes. She sets down her serving tray, and she sets aside her pretense and her pride. She kneels at the feet of Jesus, just like she did before Jesus raised her brother from the dead. And in the midst of this feast, in the presence of Peter and James and John, Jesus entered three in the presence of her sister, And brother, in the midst of their respected and honored guests, a disrespected and dishonorable woman is moved to worship the God, the one who raised her brother from the dead. And instead of following her lead, instead of joining her in worship, instead of offering Jesus whatever they had, the others were indignant, offended by this woman's social impropriety and her embarrassing emotionalism. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. It's a pretty moving story when you stop To think about it especially where it's set in the context of the book of john right the question is what do we do with this right what do we what do we take away from it one of the answers whenever you read a narrative is to look at the people in the story and in this case i think we can look at the people in the story in relationship to jesus and so let's start with this group that is called the chief priests or the sadducees these were wealthy religious leaders They had worked in relatively close collaboration with the Roman government to gain their wealth and to gain their position, and frankly, the last thing they needed was to have their wealth and their position threatened by this rebel, Jesus. And so in the presence of the Messiah, a man who had performed miracles of Old Testament proportions, in the presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah, in the presence of the word who had become flesh, they had been faced with a choice, and they decided— To silence him, to tune him out, to quiet his voice in their ears once and for all, and on top of it, to erase Lazarus as well, since the presence of Jesus and his once-dead friend threatened their position, their security, their identity, their comfort, their power, even their religious perspective. In their minds, the only answer to the presence of Jesus was to snuff him out forever, So, some of you are here today even though you are offended by Jesus as well. Some of you in this room are offended by Jesus, right? And you've decided to silence him too. You're offended because he threatens your particular perspective of reality. You're offended because he threatens your particular view of what's true and right and good, what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's true and false. Jesus impinges upon your erudite autonomy, Or maybe others of you are offended because Jesus isn't afraid to address your money and your life, claiming that they actually rightfully belong not to you, but to God. And so you're offended. Still others are offended by Jesus because he inevitably leads you to offer forgiveness to those who have harmed you and those who have failed you. Just don't forget that he offers you that same forgiveness as well. Do not silence Jesus. Who else do we see in the story? We see Judas, right? Pretty easy to to single him out. What about him? We don't know exactly what drew Judas to Jesus. We knew sort of theologically what God was going to do. But what we do know is that his motive for staying with Jesus wasn't worship. It wasn't what he could give, but rather it's what he could get. We see Judas' greed on display throughout the Gospels, even leading him to eventually betray Jesus. Surely, surely, none of us have that kind of a relationship with Jesus, simply keeping him close enough so that we might get what we want from him, right? We'd, we would never do that. None of us would stay with Jesus just to bribe God into giving us healthy kids or a better business or a better life, or would we, right? Right? I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think we have to admit that at times that's exactly why we stay faithful to God and stay faithful to Jesus is because we want him to bless us, right? Judas, the Sadducees, the crowds. What about the crowds? They just kind of came to see the show. That's at least the idea that's given here in this passage. They wanted to see tricks and miracles, and they wanted to see some drama. And so for them, the trip to see Jesus was just as much about seeing Lazarus. That's what the passage tells us. It was more like a visit to Ripley's Believe It or Not. They weren't there to honor or to worship Jesus yet. They were there probably because they were curious, mostly. And honestly, I can think of far worse reasons to be in church today. Maybe some of you are here today because we meet in a theater, and you're curious about that. Or maybe you're here because we have great music. Thank you, David Slade. Or maybe... You're here because we have free coffee and muffins, right? Or maybe you're here because there's a cute girl that you know who comes to Seven Hills Fellowship. I mean, really, the truth is there are all sorts of reasons why we're here this morning that aren't particularly valid or noble or good or honest or true, but maybe some of you are here this morning because you are curious about Jesus. Maybe you find him compelling, and if so, I am glad you're here, and I hope and pray that today, that you do find Jesus, or rather that you are found by him. Sadducees, Judas, the crowds. How about Martha? I I love Martha. Like, I get Martha. Part of the reason I get Martha is because she reminds me of my mom, right? You can't enter into uh, Casa de Pierce in Travelers Rest, South Carolina without my mom talking to you, and at the same time, with a rag in one hand wiping the counter and a hand in the other offering food and you know dur- during Thanksgiving dinner everybody else is sitting around the table and she's up and she's in the kitchen preparing food and she's bringing it over and we're all eating after the prayer and she's still in the kitchen making more food and she gets up and she sits down and she gets up and she sits down we were on vacation at the beach a little while ago uh, several weeks ago and uh, you know we sit down for all these you know dinners together and she's never with us she's always in the kitchen she's always coming back and forth she's shuttling you know and, and what she doesn't realize is that as much as we love her service, what we really actually want is her, right? We actually want her to rest. We actually want her to sit down at the table to be with us. And so, again, I get Martha. She's in the presence of the man who raised her brother from the dead, and in the presence of this God-man, Martha was focused on the tasks at hand, which for her was this preparation of and service of this big meal this banquet her desire was noble it was good but her focus on the tasks distracted her from the most important thing worshipping and seeing Jesus again probably a lot of us in this room understand Martha i know i do i've seen i've seen what jesus has done i know who he is but like so other so many other women and men in ministry i'm so intent on serving him I'm so intent on building his kingdom that I sometimes or often simply forget to stop and worship him, right? And like with me with my mom, I'm sure Jesus appreciates my service. I'm pre- sure he appreciates my willingness, but I'm positive that what he wants more than anything is just me and you, right? That's what he really wants. He wants you to sit at his feet. He wants you to stop and worship Sure, serve him, but he wants your heart. And so like Martha, we often miss out on Jesus. Finally, we have Mary. So again, in the presence of the man who raised her brother from the dead, in the presence of the Holy One who had welcomed, accepted, and loved her despite her unholiness, her response was to worship Jesus extravagantly and shamelessly. Let's look at the extravagance for a moment of her worship. This We're told that she puts this expensive perfume on his feet. It's called nard, and it's found in the mountains of Tibet and India, right? And so it was expensive precisely because it was found in remote regions of these remote countries. It was worth more than a year's wage. We're told 300 denarii. So a Roman soldier at the time was paid about 225 denarii a year, so this was a lot of money. In Rome, Georgia, this might be as much as $50,000 today. No wonder Judas and the disciples reacted so strongly. It was an extravagant gift. It was an extravagant act. But think about the extravagance of people's worship in the Bible. Think about Zacchaeus, right? When Jesus called him, today I give half my possessions to the poor if I stole from anybody. Nicodemus, when he prepares Jesus' body for burial, He gives so much of the the spices and so much of the preparation materials that it's like what you would have done for a prince or a king. The widow's might, she gave everything that she had. The worship of Hannah, the worship of the disciples was to carry the message of Jesus throughout the known world, even though it meant their death. Our worship of God should be extravagant. William Barclay, theologian, says this, Mary took the most precious thing she possessed and spent it all on jesus love is not love if it nicely calculates the cost it gives its all and its only regret is that it has not more still to give right what would it look like for you to worship god extravagantly maybe adoption maybe supporting a young life person maybe a campus outreach worker Maybe extravagant worship would be choosing God over obedience to a favorite sin. Maybe it's getting up while it's still dark in the morning to read your Bible and to walk and to pray. Maybe it would be fasting for a day in order to focus on being with the Lord, but our worship should be extravagant. It should be costly. We see also that Mary's worship is somewhat shameless. She lets her hair down literally. Jewish women would not have done that. In fact, when a Jewish woman was married, her hair was bound up and was never again let down in public. Really cool picture and symbolism. For a woman to let down her hair in public was actually considered immoral. Only a prostitute would do such a thing publicly. And so Mary's worship was scandalous. It was scandalous precisely because in her desire to worship her Savior, she forgot everything. She forgot the meal, she forgot the guests, she forgot her sister, she forgot that she was supposed to be serving, she forgot all the societal norms, she was oblivious to it all in the presence of Jesus. We see the same thing with David in Second Samuel 6, when David had defeated the Philistines, rescued the Ark of the Covenant, and danced in worship before the Ark upon its return to Jerusalem. His wife, Michael, was so thoroughly embarrassed and disgusted and ashamed, she thought his worship to be indecent. And embarrassing, but David couldn't, he wouldn't contain himself, and neither would Mary. What would it look like for your worship to be shameless? What would it look like for your worship to be scandalous? Right? Maybe in our context, it would be singing a little bit louder than normal, right? That may be scandalous to you, right, depending on where you come from. I love it when somebody who's off tune is belting out a hymn behind me. I'm totally for them. You know what I mean? You go. Maybe it would be raising your hands. I'm not a big hand raiser, but hey, it gets scandalous. Maybe you could close your eyes and sing and praise God as if he was the only one listening. Finally, Mary's worship was self-sacrificially humble. John makes mention of the fact that Mary washes Jesus' feet with her hair. The other accounts in Matthew and Mark refer to her anointing Jesus' head as well, but John just focuses on her feet. And foot washing was the act of a servant, right? Only a servant would do that. It was demeaning, menial work. She wasn't thinking about what she could gain or what she could lose. She wasn't thinking about her reputation. She wasn't thinking about herself at all. She was only thinking about Jesus. And that's what happens when we truly encounter him. We actually quit thinking about ourselves and our agenda and our needs and our desires and our entitlements. And we become enamored with Jesus so that we can serve him, not to gain anything from him, but simply because we have lost ourselves in his presence. So what do we do? What could possibly lead to such humble, oblivious, extravagant, scandalous worship? Maybe you could just sort of grit your teeth and summon up the willpower to do all of this. Maybe you can just sing louder, give more, raise your hands higher, and hope somehow that you'll find yourself moved like Mary. Maybe, but I I don't think so. I, I think the answer is always the same, and I think it's that you need to see the sacrifice of Jesus. Today as you look around the room you see these tables, and on the tables there's wine on the right, my right hand side of the room, on the left hand side is grape juice, but there's there's bread and there's wine. And what this bread and wine, what they symbolize is Jesus' sacrifice for you right? Jesus' sacrifice for us. What this bread and this wine symbolize is that God loved you enough, Jesus loved you enough to lay down his life that you might be brought into a relationship with him. Jesus loved you enough that he willingly laid down his life on the cross so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your past, he doesn't see your history of sin, he doesn't see The rebellion and the doubt that is still in your heart, but rather if you trust in Christ by faith, then when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect, as righteous, as clean, not just in the past, but in the present and in the future, right? And so my prayer this morning, my request, is that rather than thinking about anything that you're going to do, that as you take this meal, you think about what has been done for you. Um, let me read the words of institution and give one more qualification. This meal that we call the Lord's Supper, um, some people call it communion, um, is a meal that's only for those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. So if you're still trusting in your behavior or your record, a lots of goodness and absence of badness, and you think that that's why you're acceptable to God, then this is not for you. This is only for those who who look to Jesus and realize that he is their only hope. Hear now the words of institution. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "'This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.' In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, "'This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me.'" For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment, let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that we can look at your son Jesus to see who you are. And Father, I thank you that Jesus made it clear that you love us. Father, Jesus made it clear that by his life, and his death and his resurrection, that now we're forgiven, that we're not guilty, that we're declared righteous, that we're clean, that we're loved, that we're adopted, that your wrath no longer falls upon us because it fell upon him. And so, Father, I pray that this morning the sacrifice of Jesus would be the very thing that moves us to worship you. I pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.